0: good morning. If I could invite you in the lobby to join us and for the rest of us, do you please stop your conversations? No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you're new with us this morning and you don't know me, you might think that guy is weird for saying that, but my name is Josiah and I have the privilege of being one of the pastor elders here at Trinity. And uh, before we get into the preaching of the, uh, our God's word, I have a couple announcements for us this morning. Um, a few weeks back, um, uh, Fidel was here from Casa de Esperanza. And we teased about a mission trip coming as well. And that will be October 29th through November 10th. Um, I want to highly encourage you to check that out. Um, several from Trinity have been there before. Um, and it would be a great opportunity for you to see what, what we talked about three months ago. Um, if you have any questions, please, um, you can speak with... Tim, um, anyone from the mission team as well, Casey Green, um, we'd love to love to have you. Uh, secondly, Resolved is this morning. Resolved is our junior and senior high ministry. Uh, we will be meeting at my house at three thirty today. Um, so, if you're between the ages of twelve and you know, seventeen, if you're going into seventh or a senior in high school, please join us um, for studying the Word. Lastly, um, community groups. Um, Community groups are, some are taking a break right now. Uh, The rest will be starting back up in August, but just because there's a break going on in July does not mean this isn't a great time to check out who our community groups are, because our community groups are actually more than just a meeting on Wednesday night. It's an opportunity for us to gather both on Wednesday night, but also keep in contact throughout the week, right? Um, Several groups have either, you know, text group chats or group meet group chats where you're sharing prayer requests. Uh, Maybe you're getting together one-on-one, but it's an opportunity for us to really share our lives with each other, encourage one another in the gospel. So we already read our passage for this morning, but we will be in Psalm 103. But before we do that, if you would please stand with me and I'd like to pray over the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who has revealed himself to us. That you have given us your word to know you. Without you revealing yourself, we would not know you. But you chose to show yourself to us. And Father, as we study your word this morning, as your word is preached, I pray that you would position our hearts, Lord. Humble our hearts right now, Father. Where we need encouragement, Lord, please encourage us. Where we need conviction, Lord, please convict us. And may we run to the throne of grace that was made away by the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are a good and gracious King, and we love you. Bless the preaching of your word, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I have a question for you, and it takes a little bit of response. Don't worry, it's not too much. How many of you have ever stood atop a mountain and seen an incredible view? Good, good. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, either you weren't paying attention, or um, how many of you have only seen that view from the picture of someone else? It's okay, you can be honest. It's a safe place. Thank you, thank you, tonight. <laughs> When you get to the top of a mountain, and we love mountains, my family, we do. I'm sure you all do too. We go every year. When you get to the top of a mountain, you see a breathtaking view. The air is crisper. And something about just being in the mountains is life-giving. You, one time I took a three-day hike, and, and when I'm hiking up the mountain, I would need to remember, as exhausted as I was, like, I, I can do this. You know, At this time, I was only 25 years old, and so I should be able to do this. Um, But second of all, and probably more convincing and more encouraging of the walk, was knowing the view that I would get to. Because when you get to the top, you're going to see something like this. And after you get to the top of the mountain, and you start coming down, and maybe you get down, you can't help but tell everyone what you just saw. It might even be the people you're with the whole time. You're like, did you see that? Yes, of course I saw it. But we got to still talk about it. It was amazing. And if the view is good enough, you're going into town. Maybe you're grabbing a meal afterwards. And you're talking to strangers who aren't even asking you questions. You're telling them about how amazing it was what you saw. The idea of climbing a mountain can really give us insight into understanding Psalm 103. Because in some ways, it is actually shaped grammatically like a mountain. A mountain where David finds incredible joy at the top. It's also shaped like a mountain in the form of poetry. See, there's a form of poetry called a chiasm, where a sequence of thoughts are repeated in reverse order, as actually seen here. So at the bottom, David will say, I bless the Lord. I'm sorry, the te- I put red. That was probably a bad idea. But it says, I bless the Lord. And then it says, I forget not, as he starts to get taller, higher up to the mountain. I forget not what the Lord has done for me. And then at the top, he finds the object of worship, the steadfast love of the Lord. An amazing view. And then as he goes down, what does he do? He, he brings in all of Israel. He says, we forget not. And then he looks to all creation and he says, creation, worship. We worship. This psalm is an exhortation to bless the Lord because of the work that he has done that is centered around ultimately who he is. See, there's a lot in this psalm. Okay, We we read it earlier. Um, There's a lot there. Um, And the structure of this psalm guides the reader to the peak of David's life and what is ultimately the peak of all creation. And at the mountaintop we find the unfathomable joy of knowing the Lord. On this and on the the depthness of the psalm. Charles Spurgeon writes this quote. It's a long quote. It'll be up on the screen. Please bear with me. He says this, as in the lofty Alps, some peaks rise above all, other, all others. So among even the inspired psalms, there are heights of song, which overtop the rest. This 103rd psalm has ever seemed to us to be the Mount Rosa of the divine chain of mountains of praise glowing with ruddier light than any of the rest it is as the apple tree among the trees of the wood and its golden fruit has a flavor such as no fruit ever bears unless it has been ripened in the full sunshine of mercy it is man's reply to the benediction of his god his song of of the mount answering the redeemer's sermon on the mount nebuchadnezzar adored the idol with flute harp sackbut psaltery dulcimer And all kinds of music. And David, in far nobler style, awakens all the melodies of heaven and earth in honor of the one, only, living, and true God. Our attempt at exposition is commenced under an impressive sense of the utter impossibility of doing justice to so sublime a composition. We call upon our soul and all that is within us to aid in the pleasurable task, but alas, Our soul is finite. And and all are all of mental faculty far too little for the enterprise. There is too much in the psalm for a thousand pens to write. It is one of those all comprehending scriptures which is a Bible in itself. This is a rich psalm. You need to go home and read it again. Because here's the thing. In the same way, we could forget the view that we saw atop of a mountain. We forget the glory of the steadfast love of our God. We forget the wonderful things He does. And often, what the world will tell us when we don't feel joy, when we're, our life isn't going well, is to just buckle up, tell yourself you're worth it, tell yourself you're happy. Are my favorite. Choose joy as if it's some sort of intrinsic trait that we can conjure up. This isn't, however, how we find joy. Instead, we, like David in Psalm 103, have to find joy despite our circumstances in the person of God who is our source of joy. You see, today, our big idea is that because the Lord is merciful and gracious, Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, I worship the Lord. And I invite you to worship. First, David says that my soul worship. He starts his exhortation with the word bless the Lord. The way we typically use the word bless is to indicate someone who has is giving something to someone who has not. For example, let's bless the sick family with a meal. Or let's bless one of our sister churches in Grace Partnership with financial resources. Or generally speaking, we pray to God to bless us and or bless someone else. So the praise, bless the Lord, sounds a little backwards. How do I bless God? God is the one who gives and blesses. What can I give God that He has not already given me? The problem here isn't with anything in the Bible that David was confused, but with my limited understanding of the word bless. This word at times does carry the connotation of favor or gift. But here, in spe- specifically, it carries the idea of praise, worship, and even a position of humility and a posture of kneeling. So David's commanding his soul to kneel, to worship, to humble himself before the Lord. So, you've probably heard before that the central theme of Psalms is praise. That's true of this psalm here, but I want to challenge you that it's actually the central theme of our lives as well. Common Christian vernacular identifies worship as what we just spent 20 minutes doing, where Sydney and team led us singing. If I call someone a worship leader, Sydney or Justin probably come to your mind. But we worship in other ways as well. This is why here at Trinity, you've noticed in our bulletin, or just as Tim was leading us through the offering, we transition our time of worship to whatever we're doing here. We worship in the preaching of the word, we worship in giving, but ultimately we worship what we love. So if we love the Lord with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we will worship him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. But hear me, if we do not love the Lord, we will worship something with our whole heart soul, mind, and strength. David knows that about himself. He knows that he will worship something. So he commands his soul to bless the Lord. This is an imperative here. It's not a comment. It's not an idea. David is commanding. He's instructing his soul to worship the Lord. He's giving himself a call to worship, per se. We do the call of worship, not just because we need to have more people up here reading scripture, but we do the call to worship because we come in here incredibly distracted. If any of you loaded kids into the car, that was a temptation in and of itself. We can come with our minds and our hearts and even our bodies not prepared Mm -hmm. and we can sing some songs, hear the preaching of the word, have some conversation and never actually even do church. David speaks not to his body or even his mind here. He's not just as which is something important renewing his mind but his soul while the idea of our soul might feel a little nebulous like what are we actually talking about our soul is just simply our innermost being brown driver and driggs bible dictionary defines soul as that which breathes the breathing substance or being the inner being of man the soul leads the body but the body and mind are not worthless We don't want to walk out of here thinking that our soul is the only thing that matters. That's some sort of hyper-spiritualism, as if God didn't create the body. But our flesh, and what I mean by that is our actions, our emotions, our thoughts, are indicators of the condition of our soul. This is why he continues, to all that's within me, praise his holy name. Again, to quote Charles Spurgeon, he says, many are our faculties, emotions, and capacities. But God has given them all to us, and they ought all join in the chorus of His praise. to his praise. Half-hearted, ill-conceived, unintelligent praises are not such as we should render to our loving Lord. If the law of justice demanded all our heart and soul and mind for the creator, much more may the law of gratitude put out a comprehensive claim for the homage of our whole being to the God of grace. We will not naturally drift to praising God. We will not naturally drift to praising God. And I want to challenge us. This is why we must center our lives around instructing our soul to bless the Lord. My dad has said, as long as I can remember, the most important thing on my agenda is to be still and know that he is God. Because we will not drift towards the Lord, it is critical to our spiritual health that we instruct our souls to turn to the magnificence of Jesus. So David starts instructing himself to bless the Lord by specifically instructing himself to forget not. There are benefits, excuse me, to forget not specifically his benefits. His benefits being the Lord's benefits. There are benefits that come from the Lord that we need to not forget. And by forget, again, to use that language... We allow it to drift to the back of our minds. Forgetting is not typically an active thing we do. Instead, it's passive. This is a regular request from the Lord. We have a proclivity to forget what God has done for us. And when I say we, I mean that in the most broadest sense of the term. I mean we as humanity, we as the global church, we as Trinity, we as ourselves. God knows this about us. And he knew this about his chosen people, the Hebrews. In Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, not long after he had rescued his people out of Egypt, he had delivered them out of Egypt and was leading them into the promised land, he knew they would have plenty of opportunity to forget the good things that he had done for them. And he says this, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fulfill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and when you eat and are full real quick he's saying that God did all of this then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery when blessing abounds church We like to forget. When we're struggling, we say, where is God? David's exhortation and the exhortation that comes from the Lord in Deuteronomy are not to please remember an anniversary or a birthday, but to remember what their God has done and who he is. David wants himself and the reader to remember what God specifically does here, though. Sometimes David meditates on who God is, and he will get there in this psalm. But here... He wants to point to that our God is a God of action. See, this is why church is so important for us to know our redemptive history. Even though many of us, if not all of us in here, are not of Jewish descent, our family history is of that of the Hebrews. We are a chosen people who have been grafted in. That is our family history. That's, so study the Old Testament. When you're studying the Old Testament, that's your history, that's your family history. See, we don't worship a God who just can do something. We don't worship a God with potential. We don't worship a God who we just hope can do something. We worship a God who revealed himself through creation, who chose a people to be his own, and as we see here, forgives iniquities, heals diseases, redeems life, crowns us with steadfast love and mercy, and renews our strength. And for those of us in here who have the spirit of God living inside of us has seen him do that in our own personal lives and in the lives of our family members. And so we say, praise God. That's right. praise God. Amen. 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 And David says all of his benefits. Forget not all of his benefits. This is... So... Lisa and I were talking a couple months ago about how we have found ourselves being afraid of dwelling on the goodness and the benefits of God because of the fear of drifting into the prosperity gospel, like an overcorrection where, where we would say we only love God, we're, we're afraid of saying we only love God for his gifts. But here we see that David actually uses his gifts, uses the good things that God has done for us to ultimately point to the character in who God is. The end, the peak, and we'll get here in a second, but I'm going to do it anyways. The peak of the mountain is ultimately God himself. So first, the first benefit we see is that he forgives all your iniquity. And we can't touch on all these, but we're going to touch on a few. He forgives all your iniquity. This psalm was likely written toward the end of David's life. So if you know anything about David, you know where I'm going with this. So it was written after the story of David and Bathsheba. This was a man who was the youngest and smallest, had no reason to be king, was chosen by God to be king, and succeeded at that. He saw plenty of victories, saw Israel as a nation taken to all new levels of success, and still, he sinned grievously, committing adultery, and ultimately murdering, trying to cover it up. Church, isn't that amazing? That David, in this moment, still says he forgives all my iniquities all doesn't mean some right. it doesn't mean most it doesn't mean all up to the cutoff point right. not in most categories all means all yes that's it maybe you're in here today and you've forgotten that the steadfast love of the lord is to forgive all your iniquities meaning all that you've done wrong that you've actively done wrong and all that you should have done, but you didn't do church. Listen, there is no scenario where God only forgives some of your sin. He either forgives it all or it wasn't forgiven. How do we know that? Let's look no further than verse four. He redeems your life from the pit where redemption is necessary. That means there's a cost in the Hebrew law, the redeemer was a family member who would step in to save someone. And this could take place in a variety of ways. We're commonly aware of the story of Ruth and Boaz, who is her, who, where he is her kinsman redeemer, who marries Ruth and he takes care of her. A person could also be redeemed from slavery. If they owed a debt that couldn't be covered Rather than going into slavery, the kinsman redeemer would step in and pay the debt on behalf of the debtor, thus removing any financial obligation. Here in Psalm 103, David is remembering the fact that God is his redeemer, and he's using that Hebrew law to illustrate the fact that God, pointing towards ultimately the fact that Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, that's why he's referred to as our brother, steps in and takes on the moral obligation that we owe to God. So rather than taking the wrath of God, Jesus steps in, pays that on our behalf, sacrificing himself and absorbing that wrath. Listen, I don't believe in the power of thought. I don't believe in, or the power of words, to the effect that they will conjure something up and give you something. I do, however, believe in the power of gospel word. The power of preaching the word of God to yourself. That will change your life. And that's what David is doing here. Martin Luther said that the highest of all God's commands is this. That we ever hold up before our eyes the image of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He must daily be to our hearts the perfect mirror in which we behold how much God loves us and how well in his infinite goodness, as a faithful God, he has grandly cared for us and that that he gave his dear son for us. Do not let this mirror and throne of grace be torn away from before your eyes. Or as Jerry Bridges more succinctly said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. He is your redeemer. You needed a redeeming. And he stepped in and made a way. And so now we shift to the object of worship, the pinnacle, the peak of the mountaintop. And we see in verse eight now, this is the center of the psalm, but don't worry, this isn't the center of the sermon. He says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. David has spent the beginning encouraging his own soul to hold on to this truth and recount the good things that God has done for him. He reaches this peak and now meditates on the perfect character of our God. Now, the same way he's instructed his soul to worship, he points to, to the Lord for Israel as a whole. In order to do that, in order to bring them along, he quotes a very popular passage from Exodus 34. When, Mount, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, Moses was on the mountain. he led them into the desert. They were on their journey. He goes up the mountain. And the people of God, who had just been redeemed from Egypt, say, essentially, like, we're bored. We don't know what's happening. Aaron, make us a god. They gather all of their gold. And he forms it into a calf, a golden calf, right? And I don't know how I missed this growing up. This, I kind of found this later in life. This isn't just a God, like another God from Egypt. They call this God Yahweh, the personal name of their Lord. They're not just worshiping some random idol, which is bad in of itself. But instead, they're taking the God who has acted on their behalf, and they're reducing him down to a graven image made of their gold. God is Furious, His plan is to destroy the people of Israel and start over with Moses. But signifying or being a type of the Christ to come, Moses steps in and mediates on behalf of God's people. And the Lord responds this way in Exodus 34, 6-7, which is where David gets See, in the same chapter, God refers to his people as a stiff-necked people. All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, so, in the same way, he refers, or he refers to Israel as a stiff-necked people. That's not a good thing. I think we can all understand that from context. But the Lord is merciful and gracious and is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. See, church, we too have worshiped false gods. We have put the created in the place of the creator and we deserve punishment. You may have noticed, though, a difference in the Psalm passage and the Exodus passage. David leaves off the part of not clearing the guilty. Why is this? it's been said here before, and you've probably read it other places, but that there is not a single sin that goes unpunished. All sin is paid for. Remember what all means are from earlier, all means all. But the question is who is paying for your sin? For the unbeliever, the one whose faith is not placed in Christ, who is not covered by Christ's sacrifice. that sin will be paid for by the unbeliever. Mm -hmm. But for the one who puts their faith in Christ, their sin is taken. This is the steadfast love of our God. He isn't just simply good-natured towards us, like a far-off grandfather, and not doing anything about our problem. But instead, he steps in. And makes our problem right. James Mays writes Steadfast love is, of course, the attribute and activity of the Lord celebrated in the Psalms as the Lord's essential goodness beyond all others. Steadfast love is both character and act. One can attempt to define it as helpfulness towards those whom one stands in relationship. To do has said, and that's just the Hebrew word for steadfast love is to do the best and make the best of a relationship. Our Lord does the best for our relationship by giving us the gospel, which is that we were and if you haven't heard this before, I'm going to lay it out very plainly, that we are sinners, we have done wrong, we have defamed, profaned the name of our God. We are deserving of eternal punishment. But Jesus came to be our sacrifice. He came to take our punishment and to forgive all our iniquities, redeem us from the pit so that we could be with him forever and worship him the way we were created to do. Amen. Do you believe that God, that your God, does what is best for your relationship? Or do you believe that he is just waiting for you to mess up? Following the very personal memories of the psalmist, he turns to the collective or communal remembering. And it's all centered on verse 8. And it bridges between David's personal memory and what Israel has seen. So we forget not. As David leaves the pinnacle of praising the Lord's steadfast love, he turns to invite others to embrace the joy of our Lord's steadfast love. Just as we said, when we leave the top of a mountain on our own hike, we can't help but tell others about it. David's now reminding others who have actually experienced the steadfast love of the Lord before. They have context for what's happened, right? Not only does David know that he forgives all of his personal iniquities, but he also forgives the iniquities of all his chosen people. Look with me starting in verse 10. He says, He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Praise God. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. As we've discussed, we personally have a tendency to forget the gifts of God, to forget what He has done for us, to forget who He is. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, oh yeah, I definitely know that. But let's not forget the collective nature of what we just affirmed. Let's not forget about the other people in the room this morning. The same way we individually need to be reminded about the steadfast love of our Lord, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your children, your small group, excuse me, your community group, needs to be reminded of the steadfast love of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. If you're walking alone this morning, I want to invite you to join us. I will be your friend. And speaking on behalf of several here in Trinity, they will be your friend. And by friend, I mean we will encourage you in the Lord and point you to the gospel so that we will arrive. Prepared for his glory. When David calls Israel to remember their history, he expounds further on God forgiving all their iniquities. He says that the Lord will not always chide, that is, to scold or rebuke. Saying he will not always chide, though implies that he will. Hebrews 12:6 reminds us a little bit more explicitly stating, "For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives." But as Christians, we know that that rebuking will come to an end. And we also know that the Lord disciplining us is one of many ways in which he affirms us as a son or daughter. But with that said, he doesn't actually deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't punish us. He disciplines us. See, there's a difference. His forgiveness removes our transgression and the punishment goes on Christ. And he disciplines us to prepare us for eternity, to make us more like his son. Verse 13 says, He's a good father. He shows us compassion like a father. He doesn't just turn a blind eye, but He deals with our sin. He deals with our problem, and He gives us what we need to be righteous. As we said earlier, Jesus paid it all. So there's nothing for the believer to pay. Right. He has given us what we need to be holy, and to ultimately worship him the way we were created to do. If we go out to eat with a friend and they pay the bill, we don't try to pay it again. That would be just dumb. There's no other way about it. Like that was, I, I don't know what I would do if I was the waiter. What are you trying to do here? We don't question their currency. We don't inspect and be like... Ugh. That US dollar doesn't really fit with my US dollar, or that's not my bank. Like, we are thankful that they paid for our meal. Why would we not rejoice in the full payment of our sins for our lives? Right. So that we stand clean before a just God, so that we can stay with Him, be with Him forever. Yes. Do you believe that God will show you compassion? And you might be at this point starting to see, like, I'm asking, like, do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God will show you compassion? And I hope that you see from the question, if you don't this morning, that's okay. He's calling you to believe that. But he wants you to come to him. If you don't believe in his goodness, you're not going to show up to him and be like, he's not going to say, why don't you believe in my goodness? He's going to say, see? I am good. Look to Christ on the cross. Lastly, David moves to a collective we worship. If our experience is good enough, we're not only going to tell our close friends, but we're going to start talking to strangers about it too. You've all been that guy, or you've all encountered that guy. Here, David doesn't just tell creation what he saw right? He doesn't just come down the mountain to stay in our illustration and say, that, that sight was amazing. No, he comes down the mountain. He says, you got to go up there. Come with me. I'm going back up. Come with me this time. Because it is amazing. It is the natural flow of our time with the Lord. Our private worship and delight in the Lord leads us to tell others the same. But as I just said, this time, rather than a, it was great, it's, you can come with me. You can come see him for yourself. This closing refrain is a cry for all of creation to join in the worship of the Lord. And this is David pointing ultimately towards eternity. The worship team, you can join, if you would, please. See, there will be a day when all of creation obeys this passage and worships in perfect harmony. Not just humanity, but all of creation. The other day, I was on a bike ride with our family. Um, So I was riding, and we have like a seat in the front and then a seat in the back. And then Lisa was riding with Clara. So I had the two bigger kids, which we probably got to up, upgrade because they're getting too big. Um, and so fitting, the bike broke. <laughs> and so we're like a couple miles or maybe a mile and a half from the house. And we're like, oh, man. Um, so Lisa, we decided she's going to go back, grab the van, and we'll put the bike in there. And, but rather than just sitting with the kids, I decided to walk. So I put the kids in the front and one in the back. And I'm just pushing the bike through Hickory Hills. Like, like a fool, but while I'm while I'm walking, I'm obviously mad because I have to now fix a bike. Um, and Isla goes, "Why'd the bike break?" And I'm thinking, if I knew, I'd fix it. Um, but I don't. And but I, I don't know from a mechanical sense, but I do know from a theological sense. So I said, "Well, the bike broke because the world's fallen." She said, what does that mean? <laughs> 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 Understanding that there's more to theological phrases than pithy quotes. Um, and I said, well, you know the story of Adam and Eve, and because they sinned, and all of humanity sinned, we messed the world up really bad. It's not how it's created to be. And ultimately... There's really big, bad things that happen, and then there's little things that happen like this. And though, even though this one is smaller like the, we're fine, obviously it's a reminder that this isn't the way the world's supposed to be. that those annoying things that happen to you throughout the week, they're not forever. And it's God saying, this isn't your home. Creation is broken, but I'm going to restore it. Rolf Jacobson, in his commentary on Psalms, says this. The call to praise, this call to praise, this specific call that he's ending the psalm with, specifically verses 20 through 22. Does not so much bring the psalm to an end, but rather it brings the psalm to a crest so the idea of being the idea being that the psalm never fully ends because the praise it has initiated continues wherever and whenever its concluding call to praise finds a receptive ear and voice that's for us church our praise never ends It doesn't end when we leave this room on Sunday. It doesn't end when we take our last breath. And it doesn't end when this world is destroyed as we know it. It continues on and on into creation as more voices hear and more join together as we collectively say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, praise his holy name. How could I not after what I have seen and how I have known him? So church, I want to invite you to stand with us as we sing. And I want to ask you to take inventory of your heart. What is your soul praising today? As we said earlier, you will worship something. Is it the Lord? Is it your work, family, house, hobbies? Maybe it's pleasure and food, TV and social media. Maybe your worship takes a very unhealthy form, a codependent relationship. Today, the Lord is speaking and giving us a means to worship him. He calls us to instruct our own souls to worship him. He knows that the greatest pleasure we can ever experience will be to worship him truly with all that is within us. If you're here this morning and you've known the Lord and you've experienced his forgiveness, but you've just found yourself forgetting those truths we've talked about today. I want to invite you to pray and ask the Lord to position your heart for praise. It may take a time of confession and honesty that you haven't been willing to have with the Lord because you haven't believed that he's a good God. But in that time, I promise you, you will find a compassionate, Father, whose steadfast love never ends. Maybe you're in here and you've never experienced that at all. The same exhortation goes for you. You've never professed Christ as your Savior. You've never pleaded His sacrifice for your sins. I want to invite you to call upon the name of the Lord. Plead His forgiveness. I'll be down front. Tim will be down front. uh, Rick's over here in the back. um, And don't leave this place without doing business with the Lord. And lastly, some of us in here might be thinking, and this is where I was very strongly convicted while preparing this sermon. I love the Lord. I'm spending time with him and I like to talk about him with other Christians, but I really don't like it when I end up in a Cracker Barrel and there's a stranger there. I'm not telling him anything about the Lord. Are you experiencing the goodness of God in a way that makes you go, yeah, that family member who, it's going to be an awkward conversation. I can't help but tell them about it because he's good. The motivating factor in no way is actually the family member, but it's actually the goodness of our God. Good. It's good. And so I want to challenge us. If you're, you've been that you know, steadfast believer, you're involved in community group, you're doing all the, all the things, right? You're doing all the church things. Are you experiencing the steadfast love of the Lord in a way that makes you like, you, you got to know about this. You gotta know this guy. You gotta know this God. He's amazing. So if you would please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to repentance, that we would walk forth today worshiping you with all that is within us, in our families, in our community groups, in our workplaces, in our hobbies, Lord. May we worship you because of your steadfast love and invite others to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.